the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango for the amazing intro music. Today's guest is the amazing comedian and host of the Netflix show, The Patriot Act. He's also got a wonderful special out on Netflix. A uh, huge fan of his work ever since he was on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And he's really taken the torch of that show and of Jon's sort of legacy and done it in a way that's important for me to watch because I understand representation more than ever. I'm not Indian Muslim. I'm not of that culture, but I appreciate it and I want to know more about it. But the stories that he talks about, his struggles with being not white in this country and learning to be him and to be proud of his background has been incredibly important for me to see. I just didn't have that growing up. And it's inspiring to me for the message that he pursues. I think he is a truth seeker and someone that is vital to keeping our moral conscience in check in today's world as sort of self-important as that sounds. Like he's really doing important work. And uh, oftentimes it's in a very funny way. I'm really thankful that he was able to come on the show. You know, he's the guy that I turn to when I'm struggling to understand a complex issue, whether it's the issues in Saudi Arabia, the the student loan crisis, or healthcare prescription disaster that we have in America today. The last episode of this season of the Patriot Act is about the Indian elections, and it was hugely eye-opening for me, having just traveled to India and spoken to many people there that I worked with on our TV show, I had just started to grasp the importance of this upcoming election. I didn't know much about it, and I'm not going to talk too much about it. All I will tell you that, you know, having spent time there, my eyes are open as to the one-sided perspective that I might have understood and that the media might want to portray. And there's a lot of people out there that are sort of scared about the elections and where India's headed. But Hassan has a way of interpreting things that's just so helpful and clear. So I highly encourage you guys to watch this episode about the Indian election. It tackles a very complex subject, as he usually does, and he makes it very clear, I think, as to why it should be something that you should be more knowledgeable about and to be concerned about, quite frankly. I wish I could have spoken to him after the shooting in New Zealand this past week, as heartbreaking as that is, not just because he's Muslim, but because I don't know how to process this kind of hate and violence. I really don't. I think the work that Hassan is doing is just so vital. And it was such an honor to speak with him. I will shut up now and let you hear my conversation with Hassan Minaj. Very thankful that he took time out of his day. And hopefully you can watch all that he does, because I do believe he's doing really important work uh, to keeping us and keeping our moral compass on the right path. And as crazy as that sounds and self-important as that sounds, I really do. I, I'm thankful that a guy like him exists because he's doing some important things. I really believe that. So I'll shut the fuck up. Here's my conversation with Hassan Minaj of the Patriot Act. Go check it out. I am in the Patriarch Studios. I didn't even know that. Studio? Was, studio? Patriarch. The studio, you film yeah. It? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with Hassan Minaj. Yes. You have no idea that 
I've been trying to pronounce your name as properly as possible like yeah. for the past week. And did I do it right? So technically, if we're going to do the, yes. the South Asian pronunciation, it's Hassan Minhaj. Hassan Minhaj. Close. Yes. Yeah. You know what? You know, why I've been doubling down on this position. I'm like, I want to say the name, my name, the way my parents say it at home is because I remember walking past a poster and someone was like, oh, it's Ansel Elgort. And I'm like, if I have to say his name properly, you, can, you have to say mine. There's a guy named Ansel Elgort and Timothy Chalamet, and there's two E's on the Timothy. You're saying Hassan Minhaj. And that's why it was so important. I was like, man, <laughs> like, I, you know what I mean? like, I'm not compromising. I have to say your name properly yeah. as close as possible. Yeah. Just know that I'm trying. Thank you. And, and look, if there's certain people you know, that have done it, they, they super butcher it. There's a lot of different pronunciations of it, depending on where you are in the world. You go to certain parts of the world and they go like Hassan, like in the Middle East, you pronounce the A part of it a little bit harder. Here in America, there's a lot of guys named Hassan, Hassan Whiteside. Like, so I, I do take Hassan, but I want people to pronounce it the way like my awesome. parents. Yeah. The way like, yeah, growing up, people but, said my name. You know, I've been a big fan of yours and I want to talk a little bit when I first met you, but this was something that I've taken for granted my entire life as well. Like how my name's pronounced, how my last name's pronounced. And the fact that you've been so vocal about it has been like inspirational, quite oh, frankly. thanks, man. Really? Yeah. As if you don't know, yeah, you're never going to know what yeah. it feels like. Yeah, yeah. And like I had a lot of friends that are Chinese-American. They were like, I have a Chinese name and I have an American name. And it always broke my heart. I remember as I got older to be like, no, you're, it's your name. You know, like that always made me, it kind of messed with my, my head a little bit. Like right. there was this point not to get like super turned about it, but like, it's like, no, that's your, that, that is your name. And like, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate language and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, it's a unique thing. It's a cool. Own it. Yeah. Yeah. But I always tried to feel what would someone that would be quote unquote would say white or not of your group, if they were the normal name, race, culture, Yeah, they're never going to understand what it's like to- sure have something so significant be insignificant. Sure. The closest I've ever gotten to it is when I go back to see my grandparents probably once or twice a year, right? I try to go back to India. And I brought a, a couple of my friends that grew up here to India and they met my cousin, Sahil. And Sahil's like, he's probably the funniest person in my family. He's my cousin, real troublemaker, just like charismatic, charming. Everyone loves him, but he'll, he'll always get you into trouble. And um, when he met a friend of mine, Jenny, he was like, you guys in America, you guys talk so funny. And they're like, what do you mean? Hey, man, let's have an apple. And like, it's like, oh yeah, everybody sounds weird depending on where you are in the world. And I just thought that was really cool for Sahil to call my American friends out on their shit. And I feel like maybe the only people that quite understand this predicament is when someone that I know from America that might be white lives in Asia for a couple years. Right. And they come back a completely different person. What usually happens? What have you noticed? Like, what are the biggest things? They just have a lot more empathy for people that are not of the quote norm. I hear what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. some jokes that they might say, I just see that it's different because they had to struggle simply right. because of their skin color. Right, right, right. right and right. they've retreated right, right. in this uh, very oh, you're on the margin way. now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I tell a lot of my friends that are cooks, like, you should just hang out in Chinatown or Koreatown in Queens uh -huh. if you can't go to Asia and just live there for like a week where. No one you know is there. Yeah, no yeah. one, there, there's no language that's spoken there. And right, right. I just don't see how that doesn't make you a better person. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I don't know if I can take the next level and have my Korean name pronounced. Really? Chang. Chang? Chang. It's not Chang. Yeah. It's Chang. My parents have never said Chang, ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when I, when, when I saw your special and how you've been changing, I was like, shit, like, 
I didn't even dawn on me that I pronounced my name two different Dude, ways. I had, I had just some like homies that are like South Asian and like, I always call them like behind closed doors, family conversations. And I, I kind of integrated that line into my special. They're like, come on, dude, like Hassan Minaj is like, you're Clark Kent. You know who you really, you know, you're, you're, you're Kal-El. You're from Krypton. You're Hassan Minhaj. And so I wanted to put that line in there. Like, I'm not Hassan Minhaj. I'm Hassan Minhaj. This is who I am. This is New Brown America. I wanted to put that line in there for a very specific purpose. And I think the people who got it, got it. The people that didn't, it's like, it's fine. But it was I really important for me to Yeah, it was, really. for, it was and, important for me to have in the show. And I mean, like, in general, like, everything you're doing to me is super important. And sometimes it's serious, but I think it's important for me to hear. And I, I, I want more people. I mean, you have a big audience already, but yeah. I was like, shit, like, just the simple fact of me understanding my own name because you're talking about it, I was like, I've never had that before. No yeah. one's ever spoken about that in my life. Yeah. I've only heard my brother complain about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He doesn't even have an English name. Yeah. But like you're you're in the um, what would you call the business that you're in? You're in the restaurant, like the food world, right? Yeah. For me as an artist, the biggest thing when people go, What do you want to do? I just want to make work that's uncompromising. So if there's people around me that I kind of respect. You know, I kind of have that close circle of people that like whenever I'm working on something, whether it's the episode we did about Saudi Arabia or what we what we did about the, the drug pricing stuff last week. Sometimes when you're poking the bear a little bit, there's people that I turn to to gut check, whether that's John or Steven or whoever to go, hey, man, like, what do you what do you think of this? And anytime someone behind closed doors is like, hey, man, are you hedging a little bit here? It drives me fucking crazy. Do you know what I mean? Just for myself. Right. That's all. Yeah. And I just feel like everything you talk about is not just for people that are brown and skin color. It's sure, sure, just sure. about everyone. Even yeah. if you're like, why, everyone finds you funny, but I feel like there's different ways you can interpret a lot of things that you're saying. Yeah. And everything you do, even on Patriot Act, it's like, yeah. you're like, I have the soapbox and I want to speak the truth as best I know how. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's so important, man. Yeah. My ethos kind of is, is like this, man. Like, one of the, my co-creators and head writers of the show is Prashant. You know, we've, we've, been, we've written stuff together for a long time. And I tell him, and you know this, working with people, seeing people that you meet, interact with in, in restaurants on the street, people's lives are hard, you know? And a lot of the stuff that's happening in the world is very esoteric and complicated and you got to navigate the great, probably podcasting is a, a great medium to really understand a lot of issues, but it's really my job to distill coffee into espresso. You got 20 minutes, you got to go home, you're on the train, you got to go see your kids, you got to see your wife, but you're going through life shit. All right, here's this issue in 21, 22 minutes. You can walk away with a very clear take and perspective on it. That's what I, I think my job is to do. Do you think people want to, I mean, you learn from John Stewart, like, do you think that people want to be challenged in today's day and age? Uh, I think the thing that where people are getting confused is the means by which you do it. Like how you deliver stuff is important. I think I've been able to get away with a lot of stuff, like whether it's the correspondence dinner, that dinner that we did, that thing that we met at. Words and the way you deliver them, this is just me nerding out about comedy, like your stage presence, the way you deliver words, the way you'll you'll smile at the end of a joke, like you choose to include a word or not include a word. It's like wielding a lightsaber and only few Jedi can wield it in extremely well, you know? It's what makes, like, the Chappelle's and the, 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 the Rocks, those like, guys like that, like, so great at what they do, in my opinion. And so I do think people want to be challenged, but you, you, you have to find the right way to do it. And comedy 
has maybe always been going all the way back to like yes. Greece, probably yes. Yes. The, the best Sat- way to satire, talk about yes. the most serious shit. Yes, yes. And the stuff you cover is really serious, man. Yeah. In the best possible way, yeah. right? Yeah. You find the humor in it and the pain. Yeah. But I try to ground it to a story. Like, look, I think the reason why people are, everything right now is so divided is because if you go to Twitter, if you read news articles, it's everyone's take versus someone else's take, right? And me and you can get into philosophical debates all day, right? But if you can tether that to a human interest story, story is way more powerful than take. Mm. That's why people, to be honest with you, David, man, like political comedy is relatively niche in comparison to Stranger Things, in comparison to E.T. or those are stories. People love stories. I've always thought about this, man. Like you realize some of your favorite movies, someone politically and ideologically can be on the completely other end of the spectrum from you, but still love Back to the Future. Why? They can plug in with the story. To be quite honest with you, I'm trying to integrate as much story and heart into the political comedy because Shit gets very divisive, you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, honestly, I've tried to do that with food without even thinking about it subconsciously. I, you know, it's the one thing you can— Food is the—can I tell you what my yeah, theory is with please. food? please. So I remember there was this Anthony Bourdain episode, like, may he rest in peace, about when he when he went to both—he uh, he was talking about Palestine and Israel, and he was saying, like, the loose premise was, like, this may be controversial, but who invented hummus and who has the best sort of hummus and baba ganoush, right? And both sides are sort of arguing. He was using that as a, loosely as a vehicle to talk about the conflict, right? And I was like, look, like, that's not really where the conflict is, real talk, real talk. However, the thing that I was able to take away is food, and I'm saying this as a, I hope you don't take this as insulting, like, I'm not a foodie, but food is a conduit into conversation. And that to me is the most important thing. Like you're inviting people. And that's what I love about ugly delicious. You're inviting people like into your home, into conversation. There's this emotional aspect of, Hey, take your shoes off and let's talk. Mm. You're almost, you're treating them like family or a friend. Absolutely. And all of a sudden, all of those things where you can sort of like, you paint everybody with a very broad brush stroke. Those things go away. You know what I mean? They, they start to, you, you, you start to have to navigate people for who they are. But, I mean, maybe I'd like to add, and you can agree or disagree, is food is about conversation, but it's also about judgments and perceived values and cultural truths that are oftentimes wrong. Because everyone has to eat. Everyone would rather eat well. It's so uh, assumed, like just a basic instinct that we all have, that people just don't think too much about it. So it tells you so much about someone because it's how they breathe. Right. And that's what I'm trying to unlock is like, if you can understand how you think about food, so many of your value systems about food, I believe genuinely reflect your greater worldviews. Explain that to me. Like, give me an example. So like right now you're, you're super loopy, right? Like obviously because you're about to have a baby, you got, you're, you're in the eye of the storm. Yeah. You know, my daughter, she's 11 months. Like I, like I, I know (laughs) where you, like, I know where you are, man. You're in survival mode right now. Like, and so am I, I mean, so am I, right? Like, how do my food choices tap into my values at this juncture? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Well, now it's about nurturing, right? Yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah. It does reflect how I think about food, I think is an accurate reflection of who I am as a person as I've grown and as I've matured. Interesting. And it's less about feeding my own ego and my narcissism and genuinely getting back to what I loved about cooking, which is making someone feel great. Yeah. 
And that food doesn't always have to be the quote unquote, the most delicious. It's the intent that has to be perfect. Right. And if that makes any sense, it's like, wait, I can use food to break down how someone feels about something. And if I can do it right, I can get them to like, get people with different viewpoints, find common ground about how they feel about something delicious. And that's a that's baseline. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I can't do anything else. Sure. I can't make them laugh. I can't make them cry. But right. they can be like, hey, you're a different skin color. I'm a different skin color. You're Republican. I'm Democrat. Right. You're rich. I'm poor. But we both love this taco. Yeah. We can't agree with anything else. But like that can be a starting point. Yeah. Or conversely, we don't like that. Why do we not like that? Is it because you find it not delicious or because of how you were raised, the part of the neighborhood you're in? Ask yourself why you don't like something. Right. And I can go down that rabbit hole and never come out. Right. And that's why I feel sometimes I'm losing my mind just thinking about food sometimes. You know? <laughs> really? Yeah. It's that's crazy. crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, being an expecting dad and all of these things, sometimes it's too much. So I'm just trying to like get centered on what I need to do uh-huh. uh, because it feels like- How many restaurants do you have? Too many. Too many. It's because it's, um, it's its own like- thing its own entity and it's, yeah. you got to just keep on feeding it yeah all these people do you like do you miss like and i feel this with running a show sometimes i have to be producer so much i have to think about what we're doing in season two and season three and season four all that stuff right that do you ever sometimes miss the the aspect of like i want to be the artist right now i want to just i just want to think about just cooking that well yeah do you know do you know 100 percent and I feel like a lot of chefs feel this way. You become a chef or you get promoted because you're good at cooking. But it doesn't mean you're good at managing people. Right. It doesn't mean you know how to problem solve or communicate. Right. And a lot of this has been trial by fire over the, what, 16 years. And I find that I oftentimes are creating really cool jobs in my head to do, but I'm giving it to someone else. I oftentimes, I feel like I'm doing the worst part of the job. And I have to be comfortable with that. because. I mean, I'm a dad at the age of 41, yeah, and I think that's a good thing for me right now because I'm mature enough to understand the pros and cons and the trials and tribulations. But totally. for the most part, as a manager, as a growing business, I have to accept that I've already had my fun doing what I wanted to do. Oh, interesting. And now it's time, much like maybe an athlete. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be the clown that's like, I can keep on playing. Right, right, right. right. I have wisdom now, uh-huh. and I, it's accumulated to the point where I can distribute it out and make other people successful. So that's great, man. Um, that's got, really my what joy. Got you, what got you to be that way? Being horrible and being a really shitty leader, being really? a really bad manager. What yeah. was, what was it about? Were you just like spazzing out? Spazzing out. I'm, I'm saying this because like, dude, I'm running like, yeah, I'm Who running ta- a young show. Did, did anyone tell you how to be a manager? No, I, look, the best example, like I'm lucky I got to, learn under John. So I got to see Stuart, you know, I got to see someone who had sort of really mastered their craft and they were in year, you know, 15, 16, 17 of their career, right. Of, of hosting the daily show. So I got to see a very mature person. He's 51, 52 at the time. Right. Like I got to see a a very mature person, you know, helm this thing, but trial by fire, then you have to do it. And everybody's like, Hey, Hey, what do you want to do? That does require a level of Wisdom, and that's that's the thing you I don't have. I'm, I I I want it, but no matter how much I write, no matter how much I sleep at the office, you can't get it. You have to live through things to get wisdom. That's, so I try to surround myself with people who are wise. To, to that's sort the of best way to do yeah. it. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if there's any advice, I just look back at how bad I was, and it, my only hope is to get better. Uh-huh. And and I think there's been a disconnect. Just because you know doesn't mean it's actionable. Uh-huh. And that was the big delta for me to come to a realization. I would think about how to be the best possible leader manager in my head right. all the time. Right. But just because I thought about it, I fooled myself thinking I was doing it. Yeah. And I think coming to terms with how people really felt about my management skills uh-huh. was a humbling. Oh, it's really humbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, actually, they hate you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> actually, when you leave, they just talk about how awful you are. For my own, like, mindset, when I think about where I need to be, I have to assume that people, I'm never going to make everyone happy. Right. But when people go out for drinks after work, as they do in the hospitality business, and I tell this to my own staff, uh, you want to be the kind of manager or boss when people have drinks and they're talking about it and they're always unloading their their troubles yeah, yeah, that yeah. like they don't talk poorly about you. Right. <laughs> they're like, actually, I hate this person, this person, but man, this guy's a great boss. This right. girl's teaching me how to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a really great feeling. Yeah. Because we've all been on the other end yeah. of having a shitty boss. Yeah. And when I really empathize with that, I was like, man, my job, what gives me purpose in, in like my happiness is to weirdly serve other people and to put people in positions of success. How real that is, I don't know, but I've definitely convinced myself that's the fucking truth now. Right, you know? right, right. So I don't really have an answer, but I always try to reverse engineer that feeling that I want someone to have. Just yeah. like I do when I make a recipe, I want someone to feel something. Ultimately, I want them, like, you want someone to laugh and have growth somehow in that yeah, short period of time. 100%. And yes. I, I feel the same way about food yes. or managing. Like, how do you capture that feeling that we can all imagine? However we get there in a moral fashion doesn't fucking matter. Right. So I realize when I talk this way, I sound like a real crazy person. So. No, no, no. I get it. What's your connection with comedy? Like, how do you, how are you so connected with comedians and stuff? That's a good question. Um, they just came to the restaurant. Really? Early on, yeah. Nick Kroll would yeah. come in, uh-huh. and then John Mulaney, and yeah. Alan Yang through Aziz. Aziz, like, came to Sambar when he was at NYU. And, wow. and then, like, David Cross used to come in, and even, like, all these people used to come in, in the East Village, and I didn't even know who they were. Really? They just wanted to eat. You just come by the table and just chop it up? I didn't even talk like, to any of them. I knew Nick because we had college friends. Oh, interesting. But he was, they were struggling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They I were know. really struggling, yeah, yeah, and yeah. we were all struggling together. Yeah. So it was just more because they were friends. Like, I don't even, honestly, a lot of them, I don't give a shit about their comedy. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's not why I'm friends with them. That's great. You know what I mean? I love that. It's like they love eating and they want to have a good time. But I learn a lot about editing a dish. I use comedy terms, I think, all the time. Oh, really? That's hilarious. Because like uh, the term, what, punching up a joke? Yeah, yeah. Fuck, man, I use that all the time. Like this needs punch up. Oh, we need to cut this. Like, yeah, 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 totally. You know, and, and cooks need to learn from that. I feel like that creative endeavor can be applied to a lot of different things, but- just because you think something's funny or tastes good doesn't mean it can't be better or doesn't mean that it's universal to everyone around you. Yeah. Critically thinking through means even if you're in agreement with something to spend an equal amount of time thinking it sucks. Right. I don't think cooks do that enough. Really? Yeah. But comedians are brutal. Yeah, we're brutal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah, that bums me out. That like yeah. that there's just there's just people in the restaurant business just open micing on you. They're, it's not even like the finished special. It's not the product. Well, they think that it is. Oh, and cooking is this weird thing because it is sort of solipsistic. You're making a dish. Yeah, you think it's good, but there's like this weird magical leap of faith where just because you think something tastes good 
you assume that most people are also going to like it. Oh, interesting. And it's not like when you tell a joke over yeah. a period of like three weeks, yeah. you collect data and know like, oh, that works. Here, yeah, here, and I want to tweak this. Yeah. How the fuck do you know that as a chef? How right. do you know when right. someone's like, they really love this? Right, right, right. You know, how many times when people come to you after a comedy set and they tell you, man, hey, dude, that was great, but you thought it sucked. I mean, that's happened before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how many times do you think that they're telling the truth? Oh, that's interesting. And this is the Asian parent fucking me yeah, up. Yeah, no, 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 no. But like, the only thing in food that I feel is truthful yeah. is criticism. Wow. That's actually really good that you have that masochist. Type, oh, man, type of, big yeah, time. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but like, feeding off that actually makes you stronger. It's probably why you're like, you are where you are. I agree with that. Totally. <laughs> Can I ask you this about the restaurant business then, if, if, to be critical in general? You know, like my wife is really into it. The plating, the way stuff is designed, the way stuff looks. For whatever reason, that doesn't tickle my fancy the same way as like a close friend of mine inviting me over to his house and his mom making me dal chowl. Like a crazy plated thing with the back green up, drizzle. Dal, dal, dal is the lentil. Dal is lentil. Chowl is rice. And dal chowl is This is the like, shit that's going to change. You said something that is meaningful to you and means a lot to you. Yeah. But most of the world has no fucking idea what this dish is. What do you mean? Lentils and rice? Yeah, but the name oh, and lentils and rice. Yeah. But like this is the thing that I am just saying is going to change and has to change. Yeah. Something that's meaningful to you is not meaningful at all. People like lentils and rice. I think a lot of people in America are like, why, why would you eat that? It's hearty, light, delicious. It's everything. It's great. I think it's one of the best... Probably one of the best dishes. It's in probably the most cooking. commonly yes. eaten dish in the world. Yes, yes. And you go in there, and someone's making it for you, and it's almost always going to be good. If someone's yeah, it for yeah. You. And it's if, if it's someone's mom, or if it's someone's like wife, or someone's, you know what I mean. You go to someone's house, and it's going to be solid. It's a staple food. But that's the food you would rather eat. Correct. When that you say I, you don't I, care that about that food, I, that I can appreciate and like, it'll fill me up. It also, I don't know how to say this. Sounds stupid, but it's like it tastes like home. Like the dal chow you'll have at my house that Bina will make is going to be different than the dal chow you have at my mom's house. It's just slightly different, but you'll get that same feeling. And I think that's what's made Indian food hard for a lot of people to understand because it's not monolithic. Everyone has their own personality yes. and they make it differently, yes. even though they're cooking the same thing. Yes, and you've seen it. You've seen like black dal, kali dal, which is like the black, the darker lentils. You've seen yellow dal, which is like the yellow lentils. Unfortunately, I think a lot of like Indian food, it's you're getting straight up wedding food. You're getting very ostentatious, buttery curries. But I love like a good curry chicken, again, at home. It's like a thing that you make quickly in the pan that your mom just like gives it to you. And I understand, look, I'm a, I'm a, I love sneakers. I love certain, I love aesthetic beauty of things. But for me, food and I like the feeling and the conversation. And I feel like a lot of times it's the same reason why I fucking hate sneaker culture now. It's there's all this like hype and lines and there's a lot of the rah-rah to it. And I don't know, man, maybe this is just the no, no, no. This, Every, is the, this is the oxygen I get in my work, right? Like I'm more earnest than I am nihilistic. Maybe maybe that's affected my comedy a lot. So I love that feeling right. of like the core essence of what someone's really, really like. It's what I want to be on stage too. Be like, man, I, I don't know. I'm very similar I to fuck you. with Hassan. I don't know, man. I just fuck with this guy the same way. I don't know. Like, Pryor's from a different generation, but when I watch him, I can see things in his eyes and his intonations where it's like, I feel like I know him, mm. you know? And I'm trying to convey that. And I like that when I feel that way when I watch a movie or when I eat food. I like that. Before we go on, 
Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses can connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Brilliant Earth. Brilliant Earth is a global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring, right on their website by picking from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items with exclusive, unique designs you can't find anywhere else. Brilliant Earth is passionate about cultivating a more transparent, sustainable, and compassionate jewelry industry. They go above and beyond the current industry standards to offer beyond conflict-free diamonds along with fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals. They even donate 5% of profits to help build a brighter future in communities impacted by the jewelry industry. To make your Brilliant Earth purchasing experience as stress-free as possible, they offer free shipping and returns on all U.S., U.K., and Canadian orders. From now until March 24th, you will receive a complimentary pair of diamond studs with the purchase of an engagement ring. To see terms for this special offer and to shop all Brilliant Earth selections, just go to BrilliantEarth.com slash Chang. That's BrilliantEarth.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. And now, back to the show. Everything you're saying really resonates with me. Yeah. About the food that I want to make. Yeah. Because it's in opposition of what is in vogue, even within my own company. Because I think I have a lot of younger, not necessarily age, but in the years that they've done it, they want to do what's most cool and fashionable. Yeah. I never want to do that. I seriously want to make a dish Wherever I'm at, whether it's $5 or a $300 tasting menu, Uh what I want is that same feeling you just described. I'm at home. I have conversation. This is where I want to be because of this food that I'm eating. And the reason why I said that dish dal chow is that dal chow is such a Tim Duncan bank shot, just classic dish that like, we're going to eat it in the kitchen. We're not even going to eat it at the dining table. Is just you're going to put it in like a quick little bowl and then boom, go and eat it like right here with me. As I'm talking to you and you're cooking something else, it's that feeling. It's a feeling. I don't know, man. No, it's it's, no, no you do thing. know. And that's what I really want my yeah. restaurants to be. Yeah. If I said we're going to put the dal dish on one of my restaurant menus, yeah. the argument would be, oh, we have to like put some flowers on it and we put this, this, and this. I was like, no, let's just put it in a bowl yeah. and serve it as it is. Yeah. You know, and like, 
just do that. That's real. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know? I, look, man, I'm not a good, I'm not good at the business side of it. I don't know if that like sells or if like people want to like take photos of it or whatever. You know what I mean? Well, I, don't I don't know if it sells, but I feel like in this day and age where everyone's trying to, it's harder than ever. And I don't know what it's like in comedy with, yeah. to have a unique voice. But right, right, the right, only right. thing you can be that's unique is to do something that is like not cool. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. that's a leap of faith. Right, right, right. Like that's asking someone out on a date, that kind of fear. Uh-huh. Anyone can do it, but like the reason you're not going to do it is because you're scared. You're scared of rejection. Right. But right, right. no one's going to say that's not a delicious dish. Yeah, no one's going to knock that. No, no, no. It's so, a classic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally drive with everything you're saying. And one day I'll be a bit better to articulate it, but yeah. I really want people to come to my restaurants and feel that. That like, oh, this is where I need to be. And yeah. like, this reminds me of home. Like, nostalgia is such a powerful thing. It's huge. And you man. do that in your comedy. Like, uh, Homecoming King, I fucking love that. Oh, thanks, man. Because it's not like any other special I've ever seen. Thanks, man. It's moving. Thanks, Right? Man. Like, yeah. it caused me to think and to compare my own past to what you've done. Thanks, man. And that's nostalgia in the best way. It's not thanks, like man. a, it's not like a, an antique it's yeah. a it's a living breathing nostalgia. Thanks, man. That's using you to to like push things forward. Yeah, you know. I appreciate that, man. So yeah, um, how hard was it to do that? To just come out and be like, "This is what it is, man." Uh, you know, it was one of those things. It was uh, about four years in the making. So if you talk about comedy special half lives, generally people spend about like a year working on a special. This was something that I had started working on about three, four years before that started off with just a couple stories. And then I took it out of the comedy club and I'm like, I mean, I'm, I think this deserves to be in the theater space. Like I want this to feel like a whole story that weaves together art design, stage design, light design. There's going to be whole runs of the show. There might not even be laughs. It's just me fucking just putting it out there. And for the longest time, I felt like, I'm sure you feel this maybe as first generation kids, is like, there are all these pieces of Americana that exist in the book of popular culture. We don't have like a a brown or Asian John Hughes feeling of like, this is what it was. This is what our house was like. This is what my relationship was like with my parents. This was like what it was like with blah, 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 blah. Like, this is what it was like navigating between two worlds. And for it to feel super, super authentic. And for it to feel honest. Yeah, there's whole parts where I just speak. I do full-on poetry in order to. I say a poem that my dad told me. I was so fucking blown away that you're doing it. It was beautiful. Yeah, and um, there's this guy, man, like, I saw him last week. His name's Humble the Poet. I really respect him. He's he's out of Toronto. He's a a Sikh poet, right? He came up to me and gave me one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my whole life. He's like, bro, you made it without having to do an accent. Amazing. I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. Like, I was like, yeah, you're right, humble. He's like, yeah, you didn't, you spoke your language, but you weren't like, you weren't ridiculing it. You were just speaking authentically. And yeah, it just, it just meant a lot to me that he said that. Like, I was like, I didn't think of it that way. It meant a lot to me. And I'm not, I'm not your like group of people, man. And, And I was like, fuck, man, this is as personal as it gets. Yeah. And. I see me and what you're doing. And it's fucking important, man. It really is. Thanks, man. That you didn't compromise. You didn't water yeah, it down. Yeah, I didn't know how it was going to connect. But it's meant a lot of things for a lot of different people. And that, that means a lot to me. And that's the craziest thing is what I wrestle with when I, when I see what you're doing or I see 
people talking about the things that we're talking about from yeah. an immigrant perspective that has been completely overlooked forever. Yeah. How do you compare it when I, I talk to someone that, let's just say, is from middle America, and sure. they're like, that's not a problem. Oh. That's not a real problem. Oh, like, rejection? How's that a problem? Your name? Yeah. Uh, no one want to go on a date with you? How is that different? This is what I wrestle with uh-huh. when I complain about my own struggles. I know I have to think about it in the contextualization of American history. It's like, fuck, man. Like, I don't have problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, I, I totally understand that. Like, and there's even a line I have in Homecoming King. It's like, look, at the end of the day, my life is all things being considered is relatively easy. My spine isn't being shattered in the back of a police car. So I understand that. Like, you know, I, I was acknowledging sort of other things that were happening in America at that time, really horrible shit. Acknowledging that and understanding that and also telling your story is important too. You Both things can exist at once. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think, man, like, I don't know if you ever do this, like on the subway or this is the way I try to treat art or life or the things that I try to put out in the world is I, I watch people. I try to like, I watch people like on the subway, you know, when people walk on and they got their phones out. I want to see what do you oh, this person's listening to The Daily. This person's listening to da-da-da-da. Like, I don't look at them like, oh, these, these fucking people on their phones. You know, oh, look at the way this person's stressed. Oh, they have a job on here. This person works in a hospital. This person, whatever. And I'm noticing the things that they're looking at or the things that they're consuming or the songs that they're listening to, the food they're eating, it's giving them respite. It's a moment of like, respite in this chaotic day. Sometimes I start thinking, I'm like, man, I wonder if they have kids at home man, it's like nine o'clock. I'm about to go do a set, but they, they're probably like going home. Like who's watching the kids? I just try to paint the picture on their life, in their life. And to go, okay, if I want them to watch my show, they come home, maybe the kids are in bed now. I'm picturing them, the TV, Netflix. It shapes the way I even deliver information on the show. Mm. I'm trying to imagine people in the car, on the subway or at home. It's why I don't even do a top of the show. I get right into the show. Man, you don't have fucking time. You got kids. Your wife's about to deliver. Man, tonight we're going to talk about student loans. Something affects everyone I know. And I just get right into the driver's seat. That You know what I mean? These Because I think about what but people But that is what life. makes you, I think, resonate with so many people, man. It's mm-hmm. seriously, like, that's a deep level of empathy. Right? Uh-huh. That's like, honestly, David Foster Wallace type shit. No, it's not. I mean, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, 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 it is. Like, no, it is. Because like, I found that very few people want to spend time thinking how someone else might feel something. Uh huh. Truly, and I really no, believe, dude. I disagree. No, people aren't just sociopaths. Just no, out there I mean, not, like, like, to, to, like you can, but like yeah, yeah. to go f- like three feet. That's where most people go, and then you have uh-huh. some people that go deeper. But very few people go way deeper than that. Uh huh. And that's what I've learned is uh-huh. those that express themselves like you do. You yeah. can only do that because you're trying to like connect to the human condition. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. I have to remind myself, and I think that's what like Foster Wallace says, is like to be uh, well-adjusted. In his commencement speech at mm-hmm. Kenyon, it was, hey, like if I'm at the grocery store and I'm having a bad day and the cashier is being a total jerk, maybe her son is like in the hospital and she had a car accident and all these other things happen. It's like, yeah. if you think about that, how does that not make you a better person ultimately? How does that not affect your creative work? Because uh-huh. otherwise it's like all about me. Right. And right. I think we are living in a world where it's everything is about me, yeah. you know, me first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I look at what you're doing. Everything you do is like a service. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, hey, guys, <laughs> this is fucking real. Yeah, I'm trying to add value to your life. I genuinely am. You and know, I'm trying, a rare to, thing, man. I'm trying to put stuff out that makes people go, wow, I never thought of it that way. 
Or number two, people go, finally, someone, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Like, I've always wanted to articulate that, but I've never known how to. Thank you. I can share this link with someone or I can like, thank you. Like this one, the one we got coming out this Sunday on student loan debt, like over 50 million people in this country have student loan debt. It's crazy. It's nuts. You know, for people, my generation, it's crippling an entire generation of people just as they're about to start their life. Mm. I want to be able to put a thing together. So it's like, Hey, here's all the information on what's going on. Here's what you can do in case you have a bad loan servicer. These are places you can go and do it in a funny, interesting, comedic way. Where did you get the balls to just be like, fuck it. I'm going after all these things. Uh, the ball. Like growing up, like what, what happened? Were you always like, I'm, I'm going after shit or were you reserved? Uh, I mean, I was pretty reserved, man. I was like pretty like, I just did a lot of things, man. Like I'll give you an example. Like I was a pretty, I kind of doubted myself a lot. Like grew up in Davis, right? I remember graduating. I got into UCLA. It was a big deal to me. Like I always wanted, I loved UCLA basketball. I loved UCLA. I loved the campus, everything, right? I really wanted to go there. And I remember going down, my dad drove me down. We visited the campus and I ran into a kid that I knew from Sacramento. Sees me in the quad. He runs over. He's like, hey man, what are you doing here? I'm like, hey, I'm visiting. I got in. You got in? Yeah, dude, I got in. Oh, bro, dude, it's like really competitive here, man. I don't know, man. Like I'm kind of struggling. And his words kind of got into my head. And I remember I got in the car with my dad and we were driving. It's a five-hour drive from LA back to Davis. And my dad's like, you know, so what do you think? You know, my dad's immigrant dad, right? So he wanted me to go to UC Davis. That's the town that we live in. I can live at home. It's cheaper. So I knew this is a critical juncture. Like, yo, you got to put down the gauntlet and be like, I want to go to UCLA, dad. And then get in that fight. Do the five-hour fight between now and by the time you get home so you can tell mom that, hey, he's going, Hassan's going. I chicken out. I was like, you know what, dad? Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's probably better. Like I'll save money. I'll go to Davis and it's, it's probably for the best. I, I fucking just chickened out. I shot myself in the foot. I chickened out. This guy I ran into in the quad got in my head. I got scared. I grew up in a small town. I was on this big campus. I got shook and I fucked myself over. And I remember like the narrative that I told a lot of people was like, oh, my parents were really strict and they made me stay at home. It's fucking bullshit. I fucking chickened out. And it was, it's one of the biggest regrets that I had in my life. Like, it's not about what school I went to. It's the fact that I psyched myself out. Mm. I didn't lose on my own terms. And so that became a critical juncture. I'm like, I'm, ne- I'm never going to be scared ever again. I remember like those four years being upstairs in my room that I, I grew up in in high school with my fucking Scotty Pippen posters and everyone's out doing ratchet college shit. And I'm like, I'm here at home. I live at home. And I remember at 23, I got out and I'm like, I'm never looking back. I'm never looking back. And that just informs all the choices that I make. I just think about being upstairs in my room and I'm like, I'm not going to do that ever again. Man, I wish I had more time to talk about this because I think about this a lot. When I see the truthfulness Mm -hmm. and the purpose that you have, it's like, wow. Uh Like I really do in my own world see like I can connect with how like intense you are and honest you are about the things that you want to talk about. Yeah. I try to do that with food. Yeah. And when I don't, I fucking am so hard on myself. And it's so funny. I was like, I bet you when I was watching you and learning more about you, I was like, I bet you he was not like this. 100%. Yeah. Some, some, <laughs> yeah. Something, something yeah. clicked. Yeah. And, yeah. and then it was like, like, fuck it. I'm living now. I'm fu- it's, it's, yeah, I'm not scared. I'm and just not going to be scared anymore. A, same thing for me. Yeah. I'm not who I am today. 
Uh-huh. Growing up, this is not me. You ask really? anyone. It really? This is not That's fucking hilarious. me at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, fuck it. What well, do I have did, to lose? Where did you get this entrepreneurial hustle? The, to me, that's the most impressive thing. Um, you know, I think that's the Chang family will never produce a doctor or an engineer. They'll produce hustlers. My dad, he's just a fucking entrepreneur. Someone just is gritty as fuck and will do yeah. anything necessary to like make ends meet. Yeah. And that's all well, I, I love learned. that word grit. I, I actually think hustles like not the hustle means you're scheming people. Grit means like in the face of adversity, you will not fold. That's that just, to me is like the right word. And as I've gotten older and I've had a contentious relationship with my dad, uh-huh. um, like was he also in business too? Yeah, he was in the restaurant business for got most it, of his life. It, then got he got in the golf business, and he was yeah. just a he was a tiger dad in every way possible. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. he was always let down because I was never excelling in the places he wanted me to. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, that's just what I saw because I wasn't, right. I never did well in school. Yeah, I yeah. never did well in almost any measure of success. Uh-huh. So I just fucking had to like make it work. And that's just what I saw my dad do was work. Yeah. Like the immigrant experience to me is in all my travels in the world today. And as shitty as America is right now and will probably always be sometimes, it's one of the few places, maybe the only place where as impossible as, as it is for someone that comes into this country, if you work really fucking hard, yeah. there is greater probability that you can improve your Correct. life. Correct. You don't see that around the world, and that's what's depressing. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and that's all I ever learned from my dad was just work your fucking ass off. Yeah. And I never really did. I never really applied myself. And the entrepreneurial spirit was like, you're all in. There's nothing. There's no option. B. There's yeah. no option. Failure's yeah. not an option. I mean, you talked about like uh, what really resonated with me, especially in the homecoming, your, your comedy special was like getting hit. I will never forget when I told my dad something like, oh, I couldn't get into this college, whatever. He just smacked me. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. And he's like, I don't care yeah. if you don't get in, but you can't already quit yeah. before you like even attempt something. Yeah. You got to be all in. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, I never forgot that. Of course, like for years after that, I was like, fuck you, dad, you motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm like, how else was he going to communicate that yeah, to me? Yeah, <laughs> that's true, man. That's true. It's wild. So there's also this other idea that I love, man, that I didn't realize that we learned from our parents is if you can't get into the front door, you got to get in through the side or the window or the back door. Any way possible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really it is, you know, I've talked about this in the past for myself. I just didn't think I was going to be around. It was just like for real sense were you, of doom. Were you, were you just like being around? Like were you just into wild shit? Like you're no, like, no, no. Like literally, I was just like my life was. I don't know what's going to happen to me uh-huh. anymore. I don't give a fuck. I'm just going to go for a broke. Yeah, because I don't know if I'm going to be around in five years. Like every day is like carpe diem shit. That's great. I love that. I and really love that, man. That's it. And I was like, fuck. Is the only reason I'm successful is because like that happened? Do you <laughs> think two years out, one year out, like even at 41, you think a year from now? Well, the difference is, is now having a child uh-huh. and growing up as much so, as I say this, this last decade, your thirties, mm. were you thinking one year? Oh, ahead I thought I was going to be dead by 35, 100%. <laughs> I mean, I really lived really? that way too. Uh, yeah, yeah. You were living crazy. Working or, or you were just work. working. I just like, worked yeah. and I drank my face off at night. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Um, and I just didn't grow up where, where I needed to. I was uh-huh. old in some areas, but really young and in, in the important areas of mm-hmm. life for mm-hmm. that matter. Mm-hmm. And, Part of the entrepreneurial thing is like, I never took care of myself financially either. What what made you think of family? Like what made you get to this juncture in your life? Because our generation, man, there's this, we're in a very interesting spot where sort of family and this, these sort of things maybe aren't being, 
it's not being valued the same way it used to. It, it, for better or for worse, I'm not trying to assign moral no. judgment to that. What, what made it a thing for you? I think when I realized what a selfish prick I was. Really? Yeah. And I convinced myself that I was always being selfless. Uh-huh. And then I think when I came to that conclusion, it made me see how great being in a relationship could be in. But how did you get to that conclusion that you're like, I'm selfish? Years of therapy. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, for whatever reason, as like nihilistic as I am and was, uh-huh. I tried things out because I wanted to get better simultaneously. Uh-huh. So part of that was just discovery of like getting to be better. Because like, I want to be able to extract as much as humanly possible in the moment that I'm doing something. And a lot of my own neuroses have been like challenged by therapy and like medication and you name it. I've tried everything possible to get better because that's the only thing I can do. I am not that talented at a lot of things. I really believe that. The only thing I have is like, I'll fucking outwork you. You know Uh what I mean? uh And like, I'll make that mistake. And that's like data point. I'll collect that and Uh I'll try something new. Uh And it's just been this wild You mean that even as like a chef and as a whatever? Oh my God, yeah. There's been people that you're like, this person is brilliant. This person is a savant. I have no way that I can compete with them. I mean, I, I liken it to like being a poker player. I just have played more hands of poker than you. Oh, interesting. You know? I hear what you're saying. And like at some point, you're going to have a better idea of how something works. Right. So as a whole, I didn't really think that. I always thought that it was always everyone else's problem. It was just the realization like I'm the fucking problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, and that's yeah, when I started yeah. to grow up. Yeah, yeah, and and that didn't really happen till like thirty five. Wow. I knew that I had to, but it's not like I'm a slow learner at this shit, man. That's, that's interesting. Thing. That's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. So for me, it was realizing that like this thing I was chasing, show business, was, was fucking empty. It's just empty. I remember there's this conversation. This is like a legit conversation I had before I'm broke. I'm living in LA, right? I'll, I'll put a number on it. I had less than 10 grand in my savings account. It was one of those things where I, I knew I'm good for about four months. You know what I mean? Car note, apartment, you know, like God forbid a thing, whatever. I have like three months worth of like life in me. But I've been dating my now wife for a while. And I was like, hey, well, I want to, she was just graduating from her PhD program. And they were like, she was like, where is this going? You know, are, are you going to propose or not? And I remember talking to some of my friends in, in Hollywood and show business. And I was about to test for this pilot called Cuz Bros. <laughs> they're cousins and they live together. And they, they find out they're not even cousins. They're biological brothers. It's Cuz Bros or whatever the fuck. And they're like, look, man, you're testing for this. You might not get it. I mean, I, look, I would, I would only propose to her if you get Cuz Bros. And I remember just having this out-of-body experience. And I go, I'm not going to let fucking Cuz Bros determine major life decisions in my life. Because there's going to be 15 other cuz bros that happen over the course of my life. And I, this shit ends now. And this whole thing, this idea of just everyday opening deadline.com and variety.com to see what fucking pilot or movie that you don't even care about if you got it or not. I'm, I cannot live my life like that. There has to be something more meaningful like love and family and community and something bigger than just this fucking nonsense. Amen, man. Like, Sorry, I'm, I'm like- No, no, like that's shit. that's yeah. that's the real deal, yeah, man. Yeah, and, and so like that that was like another- It's so important for people for to hear that. Yeah, that like this thing that I'm chasing, when you actually looked at it for what it was, I was, I was like, I'm going to potentially 
And even Bina told me this. She's like, you know, you're doing stuff to like sabotage what we have here of like, hey, wait, I think once this thing happens, then we'll be good. She's like, you know, I'm with you. Like, I got your back. So I don't know what your hesitation is. I know, I know how much, I know how much is in the Wells Fargo checking. I love you for you. And by the way, like I have, like, I'm doing great. I have a PhD. You'll be all right. You're marrying up, you know? I just remember just being like, I cannot put this much value in something as meaning, meaningless as that and empty as like Cusbros. I feel it's very similar when yeah. I think about awards. In oh, restaurant awards. man, yeah. You have to go through that nonsense. Listen, and I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me. And particularly, I have a lot of chefs now that are winning, want to win their awards. And, you know, I can have this perspective because I've been fortunate enough and blessed to win a lot of these but honors. Do the, but do they matter? No. And I had the same thing. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. I don't give a fuck about this quote-unquote narrative tasting menu and this dish and that. I was like— uh-huh. All I want is someone to have the experience that you talked about when you're eating doll in yeah. someone's home. Like, that's what fucking matters. All this other shit is marketing bullshit. Uh-huh. Some of it is important, like the history of why things happen. But at the end of the day, why are we doing any of this? But as you said, my wife is still like, I got your back. Yeah, like, I'm with you. Like, I got you. Yeah. And, and that kind this. of feeling of knowing that, like, as stupid as I am, that, like, I can just be me has yeah. been like the most beneficial thing. And I think I'm at a point in my life where I'm a bit older than you that I'm now f- coming into my own. You know what you I mean? You really feel that way? That's 100%. Crazy. It's so funny because the image of David Chang is like, you've been in your own for like a long time. Well, that has been me too, you know? But yeah, this yeah, duration yeah. is, you know, that really was me too. That was not not me. But yeah, now I yeah. feel like I'm closer to where I want to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like you are already there. Though. I don't know about that, but... It's crazy, like, uh, you're about to have the baby. You know what the wild thing is? It's like, now that I have my daughter, like, you know, I used to kind of think my parents used to always be like, be careful, you know, like, even at, like, I remember the White House Correspondents Center, they're like, just be careful, you're making fun of very powerful people. I used to kind of have this, like, <laughs> I don't give a fuck, I'll be the Tupac of comedy, like, I don't care, like, I, you just don't care, you're just like, it'll be, our, like, it's because you're just thinking about you, and now I'm like, oh, yeah, I have to, like, be alive for her. You know what I mean? I just kind of, I can't just be selfish. I can't just be like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know? Yeah. I am so much more aware of my mortality. Not yeah. because I want to live for me. Yeah. It's like, oh, I people have to take care of my me. wife. Yeah, people need me. me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I know you got shit to do, but I wanted to talk about how I first met you and, and that fearlessness that I, <laughs> oh, that's, I saw. That's, that and night, that was I don't great. think we can go too specific about the, the place where we're at, but I was cooking a dinner with a lot of uh, important people in this room. Yeah. And I do it almost every year. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a comedy act for like the intermission of the dinner. Yeah. And then you get on stage and I think everyone's like, oh yeah, that's the guy on... Don't do a show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No one was prepared. And this was 2016, right? Yeah, it wasn't even like, yeah. And and some of the the audience were in the news quite a bit for their, you know, <laughs> status in life and people that were running an office. There might have been siblings there and stuff. And right, 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 right. You went on this crazy 30-minute set uh-huh. that I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. You just eviscerated uh, everyone. Right, 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 right. Ruthlessly. Right, right. And I was like, the fucking balls on this guy. Right. And I was like, the room was pretty much bipartisan. You had Democrats. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. And it was, basically yeah. everyone I remember after that was like, what did, What happened? 
uh-huh. because these people that are in the news were sitting right in front of you and you were like, fuck you. Uh-huh. And I was like, my God, this uh-huh. guy is like a national treasure. <laughs> and I really believe that everyone in that room, uh-huh. those that like were not pro-Trump supporters, like, wow, this guy's amazing. Uh, and funny. I felt like we all felt like we we're on cloud nine. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. What, what just happened? I actually don't even know, really know what happened because I just took off. Like, you know, I was told, hey, you're going to perform at this thing. I flew in, I did that. And then after we met, like I sort of dapped yeah. up a couple people and I took off and they're like, you're not staying for the whole thing. I'm like, nah, I just came here to do this thing. And I just took off. I just left. I went back to New York. I and- mean, it was just a dinner. Yeah. With a bunch of fucking important people. Very important people. Very important people. And you just fucking were like, I don't give a fuck about any of you. And I was like, damn. Yeah, I really was, man. I kind of was. It was 2016. You know what I mean? Like I'm wearing my I'm wearing my uh my J. Crew sales rack suit. I I remember I was wearing this this charcoal suit that I got off the J. Crew sales rack. I I knew how important you look good. I well, thank you, thank you. (laughs) But I knew how important some of the people in that room were. But I'm like, look, man, like you making it here is an anomaly. Like I really do feel like I was just like, whether it was that or the correspondence, there's a lot of Rocky One stuff. The narrative to me was, it was like, even when I got the call to do this thing, my agent was honest with me. They were like, you were like the fourth or fifth choice. <laughs> you know, like because of scheduling, these three people backed out. And it really is like, hey man, all you got to do is go the distance against Apollo Creed. That's all you got to do. You don't got to win, just fucking swing. And that's why I just treated it. Truthfully, I love cooking this dinner because it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, it does a lot of good things. A lot of interesting people. A lot of interesting people. But that was probably one of the greatest things I've ever witnessed in my <laughs> oh, life. I shit you not. I but, told The yeah. greatest sporting event I've ever seen was the Iron Bowl where Auburn beat Alabama. Uh-huh. And I'm there in the stands. Wow. It's fucking amazing. That's incredible. And I literally said to someone, I was like, this might eclipse that. Because uh-huh. it was so fucking insane. Uh-huh. It was very rarely are you just blown away at the, the scope of uh-huh. what someone's talking about and yeah. how perfect it was. And yeah. when you decided to do the tap to do the White House Correspondence Dinner, I was like, amazing. Oh, this yeah, is fucking perfect. Oh, yeah, because you had seen the preview. Yeah, yeah. you kind of seen the preview. Basically, a lot of that stuff was, you, you were like shaping up for that. Correct. And I was like, God bless. This, is, this yeah. is what America needs right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But I think all of that pales in comparison to your most recent accomplishment, playing in the NBA All-Star Game Celebrity oh, Tournament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a dream come true. Dream come true. How yeah, the I, fuck did that happen? I, look, I just, I, my publicist was like, hey, I told her, I was like, look, there's a lot of things that you get invited to, but I was like, I've been a hoops fan since I was a kid. Please let me play in the celebrity game. She reached out to the NBA. NBA was like, yeah, you should do it. I played my heart out. My ass got memed, but I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I got memed. I'm a meme now. Yeah. Asia Wilson, uh, she swatted the shit out of me and it got, it got memed, but I'm like, you know what? Shoot or shoot. Were you, were you practicing beforehand? Yeah. I, pr- I practiced like two, three weeks before. I just didn't want to completely embarrass myself because look like I'm all in on the show stuff, but I used to play a ton when I was a kid. I'm like a lot of, you know, Asian kids growing up. So yeah, I was practicing. But at the end of the day, I'm still like a man in his 30s who's a weekend warrior. I'm not going to be able to like beat professional athletes. When you put on the, the uniform and you're looking in the mirror, you're like, what the fuck is happening? It's great. It's the greatest thing ever. Ray Allen was my teammate. It's fucking incredible. Like, it's just amazing. It's the best. It's the best. Do you believe, can you believe that anything and all of this is happening still or is it still surreal to you? Uh, yeah. I, like all of that stuff is like surreal. And I, and I love that things feel new. 
I love that. Like us having this conversation, like me and you are, I'm doing your podcast. Like we're talking about food. This is a new thing. Mm. You're not like the ninth chef that I'm friends with. You're the first. I love that it feels new. I don't want to be, I love Rocky one. I don't like Rocky (laughs) three. I love everything feeling new. I don't want it to feel new for as long as possible. And we'll we'll get you out of here because you have work to do. Uh-huh. Is there anything else that you have coming up besides the next season, or this season of the we Patriot have this Act? Season, and then we're going to be off for a month. Then season three. But um, uh, let's just put it this way: the season finale of this season is is a uh, is going to be a going to be a tune a, in. It's going to be a situation for the last episode. Two oh six, season two. Yeah, two oh six. It's going to be a couple Patriot weeks. Act. Yeah, there's going to be some family conversations that need to be had because of it. But yeah. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening in to the podcast in conversation with Hassan Minaj. He's doing God's work, and I really mean that, that he's a truth teller and he's trying to to make the world a better place. So, Check out his Patriot Act series on Netflix and his comedy special on Netflix and everything else he's done, a class act. And again, very honored that he could come on our show. Give us five stars for however you rate this podcast. But before I go, I wanted to answer a Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com question. Stephen Choi asks, in a similar spirit to the Podfather's Bill Simmons classic, if aliens invaded and said, pick five people to play one game of basketball for the fate of the world. If aliens invaded and said, fill a five-person kitchen to cook one meal for the fate of the world, who would be in the kitchen and what stations? Thank you for the question, Stephen. Um, this one, I thought, was going to be one of the easier ones and proved to be one of the hardest ones to answer. And with the loopy logic of aliens invading the world, I have decided to give you my own absurdist answer to this question because it's a highly almost improbable that anything like this would ever happen. And I don't know how easy it would be to just say five people on a global level. I think I could be here forever. So I tried to narrow it down and maybe I could have fun with this over time by sort of editing, adding, and then pruning off names and maybe just doing it by continent or country first. So since we're in America, I'm going to just do American chefs that either have restaurants or are American citizens or not American citizens, but have a restaurant here. So it may not make any sense. I think it's almost impossible for me to limit it down to one per station. I will try, but not today. I am uh, going to be very transparent as to where I'm at. I'm also not going to use any names of chefs that I've worked with because I don't know why, but that would make it too hard. So Marcus Canora, Jonathan Benno, the Carbone, Teresi team, Liz Chapman, Nocturne Nawab, many people that are great chefs today. I'm going to refrain from adding to this list. Tom Calicchio's, you name it, uh, Danielle Baloud's. Um, I'm not going to do it. Or Andrew Carmelini's. Oh, man, the list goes on and on, because they could easily be on the list. I think... Uh, I'm going to have a hard time limiting it to two chefs per station. So I'm going to maybe in the future figure out how to get it down to one. But for right now, I have two people per station and I've made up some stations. So Grant Ockett's I would have on Garmanger, the chef of Linea. It allows me to use a slot that I'd probably get for Thomas Keller. 
But Grant has not only recreated Thomas Keller's menu, but he's also probably one of the great practitioners of modern gastronomy. And many of his great dishes are the small, beautiful things you want to eat. And I think that would give us a um, different weapon and different wrinkle. Because um, literally all of these people on this list can cook everything. This is just for shits and giggles. So Grant would be on there. I want to put Paul Carmichael on of Momofuku Siebo because I believe he's just a world-class chef, but also so creative on cold uh, appetizers and uh, uh, canapes. But um, I'm not going to because he's no longer in America, but in Australia. So I'm going to put in David Schlosser of Shibumi. He has a menu that can do a variety of things from a Japanese element and also widely versed in things that are European. So I think that having those two chefs represent Garmanger would give us the flexibility and the ingenuity to throw some wrinkles for uh, other beginnings of the meal. On hot appetizers, which I guess would sort of be canapes maybe as well, I'm going to put in Albert and Lauren Benuelos of Las Palmas Burritos and Yunjin Huang of Spoon by H, my very, very favorite restaurant, because I can't think of a better hot app than the burrito by La Palmas Burritos. Like La Palma Burritos are just like the best to me. You can eat like three or four of them without getting incredibly full or be full, but you can have more than one and they're just crispy, delicious. And uh, the fact that I'm not in L.A. right now pains me because I want to eat one right now. And then I would also have Yunjin. Um, chef Wong could probably make pastries as well. She's such a talented pastry chef. I often think of her maybe as like a Giannis, the Greek freak, that uh, with proper sort of circumstances and environments could be one of the great chefs out there because she has all the tools and, and talents to do so. But right now out of her little restaurant, she makes some insanely delicious small bites. I would be thrilled to have her representing the defense of America or the world against the alien invasion. On entremetier, sort of the vegetable stations that create sides and also dishes of their own, I would have Squirrels Jessica Coslow and Superiority Burgers Brooks Heedley. They're good friends in and of themselves, but you know, they could be, you know, you know, again, like a lot of these chefs could represent a lot of different stations. So Jess and Brooks, I, I just think that they are two of the most creative, best chefs in America today. And the thing is they make delicious food on all levels, but man, like how they coax the best out of vegetables. I, I can't see how we would lose with them on Entremet. I'm going to create a raw station, sort of a raw bar station Crudo, however you name it. And I would have Nikki Nakayama of Naka. Helen Rosner just wrote a terrific profile article about her and her team at Naka, the Kaiseki restaurant in LA. I would also have Nick Kim of Shuko, criminally underappreciated chef who has figured out how to put his mark on Japanese sushi while still sort of being him and being Korean American and, and putting elements that sushi's never seen, at least here in America. And Shuka is a fantastic restaurant. So to have Nikki and Nick, the double Nicks, represent raw, I would be very comfortable for the defense of the world. On Pasta Station, I would have Melissa Rodriguez, Melissa Rodriguez of Del Posto, who spent a lot of time in the Danielle world. 
And I would also have Missy Robbins of Lilia and Missy to do pasta. I think that would be a no-brainer. Two of the best chefs America's ever produced to represent pasta. You know, again, to reiterate, all of these people can be cooking basically any station. So we would be stacked. It would be uh, sort of a positionless team in many ways. For Saucier, I am going to go to someone that many people won't know, and it's the Saucier at Le Bernardin. If you haven't been to Le Bernardin, I think it's obviously seen as a fish restaurant and Eric Repair's genius, but the sauces at Le Bernardin, I think, are world-class. Like, fuck me, man. It's worth going just to taste the complexity and nuance and oftentimes simplicity and straightforwardness of sauces. A lost art in the culinary world, and that chef that presides over those sauces is Vincent Robinson, I don't even know if he's still there. He should be. I would have him making sauces. And I would also have Chef David Boulay, probably the most uh, important chef America's ever produced, sometimes the most controversial chef America's ever produced. But that guy is a fucking genius when it comes to sauces. And, uh, you know, in the 90s, when many chefs were looking at Talivant and some older school French inspiration, he was way ahead of the curve, and he knew that it was going to be Passard, Arpege, and Gagnier, and he just knew where the flavor was at around the world, and he was one of the first proponents to bring back high-end Japanese back to America. So, you know, one day we should probably just do a whole podcast on uh, the influence of David Boulay, but I would have those guys do sauciers, and I would say unequivocally, they might be the two greatest sauciers America's ever produced, maybe in the world. On meat roast... I would have Rodney Scott of Rodney Scott uh, Barbecue in Charleston, and I think he just opened up in Birmingham, Alabama, and Josh Skeens of Saison and Angler, two guys that can make delicious food a variety of different ways. You know, I think Rodney makes a lot of things that are over the smoker, but also delicious meats that are not over the smoker. And Josh, again, um, world-class chef, one of my good friends, but I've never worked with him, went to cooking school. And that guy can cook meat and fish with some of the best. So meat and roast would also be meat and fish, obviously. So I would have them. I would uh, have on my pastry team desserts, Claudia Fleming, as important as she is, she's still underappreciated for the influence she's left on America. Man, her desserts are everywhere and her styles. And the fact that her and Tom at Gramercy Tavern, probably the most important restaurant, one of the most important restaurants America's ever seen, people should buy her cookbook if you can. It's uh, as important today as it was back then. And uh, Sam Mason, who worked under Jean-Louis Paladin and then under Wiley Dufresne at WD-50 and uh, had a couple other things. And now he has Odd Fellows. But if you were able to taste Sam Mason's desserts, sort of world-class. And, and here's the thing. I'm running out of room. I, I, I want to figure out, you have Alex Dupac, you have Wiley Dufresne. So uh, I have carved out some other roles. I would have them as tournants. So forgive me. So I would have Alex and I would have Wiley Dufresne, Alex Dupac of Empion. Maybe I would put Alex on pastry, but whatever. And I would have Wiley Dufresne and Alex Dupac and Corey Lee of Bennu and Eduardo Jordan of Solare and June Baby as Tornants. You know, weirdly, that could just be the fucking starting five to begin with. 
but I would have them. And then uh, to expedite this motley crew of huge personalities, you need someone with a bigger personality that can just tell everyone to shut the fuck up and everyone would listen. You need Barbara Lynch of the many restaurants in Boston. One of the funniest, best people I know. She would keep everyone in line. That would be my team. I just know I, I just rattled off like 25 fucking people. Man, it would be really hard to narrow it down to five. I know I left out some names, so forgive me. I'm already just thinking of like David Kinch and Daniel Hume and fuck, man, this list would be really hard. So no, I don't know if I could ever go to five names, but put a gun to my head. Give me another couple months and I'll get back to you. So Stephen Choi, that's my long-winded ludicrous list of chefs off the top of my head right now. If you ask me to repeat all the names, I don't know if I could because I just spit off the shit that was off the top of my head. So there you go. Send questions to askdave at majordomomedia.com. Again, appreciate all of your support. Give us five stars or however you rate this podcast on Spotify or iTunes and stay tuned for our podcast next week. Thank you so much, guys. Take it easy.